Hello, this is Pastor Patrick Hines, and I wanted to do a special, uh, hopefully short, uh, program today. I'm using my phone, that's why it's probably, the picture probably looks a little different. I wanted to make two book recommendations. Um, I just finished uh, a series on the Gospel of Luke, and then I did a short uh, sermon series on um, lawful oaths and vows, and talking about church membership vows, and elder deacon vows, and um, pastor vows, and things like that, because... Uh, those are really, really important things, and uh, we need to be serious about what we swear by God that we will do, because God will hold us accountable to it. So those are out there on Sermon Audio if you are interested in those. But I wanted to make two book recommendations, because I, I was talking to the elders here about what to preach on next. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we were emailing about it. And I think eventually I would like to get into a series on uh, expositorily go through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, I think there's a lot of, of applications uh, from the book of Nehemiah that would be very relevant to the church's situation today, just in general. And uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of great stuff in the book of Nehemiah. I've just been going back through it again and thinking that's going to be exciting and encouraging and challenging to, to work through. Uh, so that's uh, going to be the next book of the Bible I'd like to go through. But I was also thinking about uh, the fact that we've got some new, newer folks here at church, and I don't know um, how much they know about the doctrines of grace. But I've also also been thinking, too, uh, about the fact that it's not like in your pastoral ministry or in your pastoral you know life, once you've addressed the subject once, uh, you're good, you don't need to talk about it ever again. <laughs> And you do need to revisit stuff, and you need to go back and, and preach on the gospel and preach on uh, the doctrines of grace and things like that. And the 400th anniversary of the Synod of Dort uh, was in 2018, 2019, because that synod took place um, in 1618, 1619 in the city of Dordrecht in uh, the Netherlands. And I've been uh, reading, I read the Saving the Reformation by um, Robert Godfrey, and then there's another a book that's a, a bit longer called Grace Worth Fighting For by Daniel Hyde. And I have to say, um, these books are so good. They are just outstanding. Godfrey is a first, you know, world-class historian. Uh, in fact, uh, Renewing Your Mind's been doing some of his church history series on uh, the podcast. I've been listening to that every morning and just love Robert Godfrey. He is a um, a Christian gentleman and a scholar and loves the gospel and uh, just very, very thankful for his, his work over the years. Daniel Hyde is a newer guy to me. I, I wasn't as familiar with him. I read a book, uh, actually a couple books, uh, not, not all of the second one, but I read a book called In Living Color, which is a polemic in favor of no images of Jesus and things like that, but also his book, uh, Welcome to a Reformed Church. It's really good if you um, if you're a pastor or you have a church and you have folks visiting and they're they, they're not as familiar with some of the nuances of reform theology and and the way that reform churches tend to work. <clears throat> that book's a really good introduction to that. Uh, but he wrote this book. I'll hold up hold them both up here so you can see the the uh, covers for them. Grace Worth Fighting For uh, by Daniel Hyde. I've also got both of these books on Kindle, and the other one is uh, Saving the Reformation. The Pastoral Theology of the Canons of Dort by uh, William Robert Godfrey, W. Robert Godfrey. And I wanted to just share a, a little bit about my own experience with the Canons of Dort. I have a real affection <laughs> for the Canons of Dort. I really do. In fact, I, I need to... Um, is it back over there? 
My original copy is over there somewhere um, in my stack of stuff, but I usually look at it online now, and I, I also have the, some apps that, that have it on it. And the Cannons of Dort are really special to me um, because uh, here, here's how I think about them. I started listening to the White Horse Inn, you know, back in the late 1990s, okay? So they, they hadn't even been on the radio that long. And, and back then, it was it was primarily a radio thing. Um, but there was a website called oneplace.com. I don't know if that even exists anymore, but that's where I found their program. And I started listening to stuff on there. And they did um, eight programs on predestination and election and assurance and Arminianism and things like that. I didn't really know a whole lot about those things. So I started listening to him and uh, Dr. Kim Riddlebarger made the comment that he um, often will just tell people, look, if you really want to understand what uh, Reformed theology, uh, at least this part of it, not, it's not all of it, obviously, but what this part of it, what the doctrines of grace really are about, uh, go get a copy of the Canons of Dort and read them. Now, at the time, uh, there was no Google back then. I, I used one of the search engines and typed in Cans of Dortmund, boom, found it. And uh, cut and pasted into a Word document and then printed it off. And I used a three-hole puncher and um, put it into a three-ring binder, along with the Belgian Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Confession, all these Reformed documents I was finding. And, you know, at the time, I really didn't understand why I was a Christian. I was. I, I trusted only in Christ, only in the Lord Jesus. But I didn't understand why I was a Christian. And I'll tell you, I really did not understand the love of God until I read the Canons of Dort. Not because of what the Canons of Dort say, but because of what those people that lived and died 400 years ago, those great churchmen, I think of it like this. They literally reached through the centuries and took me by the hand and walked me through the word of God. They walked me through the word of God to the passages of scripture. And I finally understood the love of God. I never really had understood it. To me, the love of God was just kind of a given. It was, well, of course. I mean, God loves everybody the same. And so he's going to give everybody an equal shot at it. And those that have never heard the gospel, they'll have a chance before they, um, at the day of judgment, God will, will share the gospel with them and they'll, they'll get a chance to tap into the love of God. I, I didn't understand it. I didn't get it. And I will never forget that moment reading the very first article in the first section of the Synod of Dort. And it was in a little paperback book I had back there. It was gray and it was called The Three Forms of Unity. And it has the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Cans of Dort. And <clears throat> reading the opening article of the first point. And by the way, the, the points as they're written in the Synod of Dort are not in the order of tulip. <laughs> uh, they're actually written in the order of ultip, U-L-T-I-P, ultip. So it's not, not tulip, it's ultip. The first point is unconditional election. And so I read the opening article, the opening point. The opening article is titled where they spell out the doctrine so that they haven't even gotten to what they're rejecting yet as far as what the Arminians were saying. But when they just spell out the doctrine, the first point of the first head of doctrine under unconditional election is titled God's right to condemn the human race. And that was, that was a shot across the bow to me. God's right to condemn the human race. I had never, ever thought about that before. And I sat there in my car reading this. It was a Sunday afternoon because I wasn't, I wasn't learning anything in the, in the church I went to. Um, 
and I would I would go to the park with my Bible with these reformed documents, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession, the Westminster Stand. I'd never even heard of this stuff. And I sat there, I, I went through several ink cartridges, <laughs> printing all this stuff off of a cheap printer, punching holes in it and three ring binder, read through the cans of Dort. God's right to condemn the entire human race. And I thought, what is that all about? And what they point out is that God would have done no one an injustice if it had been his will to simply let everybody die in their sins and go to hell. And that really struck me because they quoted from Romans 5, 12 to 19 through Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners and condemnation came to all men. And they go through in, in later articles there that man is, is not able to repent. He's not able to believe. Man has been incapacitated. I did not understand the depth of sin. I didn't understand how serious it was. I did not understand what the fall had done to me. And when I saw that, God has the right to condemn the entire human race. And he could have done that. And he didn't. That's when I finally understood how great the love of God really is and understood that it was not the case that I availed myself of what was put in front of me. Yes, I did seek the Lord. I remember thinking, yeah, but I, I did seek him though, but I didn't understand why. Why did I seek him? It's because he was seeking me. It's because God came after me. So often people think of these doctrinal disputes about unconditional election. Uh, you know, this is just a scholastic, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of, the, of a pin. And these are just scholastic, weird, you know, pedantic points of theology. Oh, no, they're not. Unconditional electing grace is the ultimate expression of the love of God. I didn't really understand what it meant that God loved me. Until I understood unconditional election. God didn't choose me because of anything he foresaw that I would do as if God looks down the corridors of time and learns things. God simply had mercy upon me because he wanted to. He made the decision to glorify his grace in my salvation instead of glorifying his justice, which he could have. And it would have been right for him to do it. It would have been good for God to send me to hell. It would have been a righteous thing. It would have been completely inappropriate, inappropriate for him to let me into heaven. But God loved me and sent his son to die for me and gave me Christian parents who prayed for me, all of this decreed by God, every step towards my salvation, planned, decreed, executed by the triune God. And therefore, there's no boasting in me at all. And I, and I remember that moment, uh, wrestling with Romans 9 and discarding the <laughs> nations and, to, you know, temporarily hardened Israel. I mean, all, all of the, the goofy, acontextual, eisegetical disrespectful quote-unquote interpretations that are that are put against Romans 9 and seeing how clear it is before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad 
in order that the purpose of God according to his choice would stand, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. I remember the, well, the, the passage in Malachi that's being quoted there is about nations. Um, that's not the application Paul makes of it. So you're arguing with him. The application Paul makes of the passage in Malachi is that it's about individuals. It's about individual election. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. God chose Jacob, not Esau. And I remember being challenged to think about what part of that phrase, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, which one of those phrases ought, ought to keep us up at night and make us just recoil in shock. It's not the Esau I hated. It's Jacob I loved. What was there to love in Jacob? What is there to love in me? I was just reading, I've been reading Daniel Hyde's exposition of the Canons of Dort in preparation for the sermon series. I'm going to preach on unconditional election this coming Sunday morning. Unconditional election is the ultimate, it is the ultimate glorious expression of the love of God. It is in love he predestined us. You know, people think the, the word predestined is, is like this bad word. To Paul, it was a cause of rejoicing. It was a cause of doxology. Praise to God. Unconditional election is the ultimate expression of the love of God. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. I didn't understand the love of God. I didn't understand how personal it is. And I, I remember that moment um, when it finally came crashing down on me uh, there in Romans 9 and thinking, man, God could have left me in my sins. He could have. In fact, it would have been good and righteous and just for him to do so. But he didn't. He didn't. God convicted me of my sin as much as I was running from him, as much as I wanted nothing to do with him. As much as I was trying my best to, to, to turn my back on him, he wouldn't let me. He reached down and took that heart of stone out and changed it and put a desire to follow Christ and put a desire to be godly. That didn't come from me. You talk about the Arminians and these canons, you know, they, when they reformed, uh, point out, we, we reject the errors of those who teach this that God predestined us based on what he foresaw we would do, that he, he foresaw that we would believe, he foresaw this and foresaw that, that we'd persevere in good works, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm thinking, okay, what would God have foreseen? Let's say God did do that. He doesn't do that. There's nothing in scripture about God looking down the corridors of time and taking in knowledge he didn't have before and learning things. That doesn't happen. That's a, a pure false doctrine. But let's just say for the sake of argument that he could do that. What would he foresee? What would he, for, what would he have foreseen in me? Closeness, resistance, unbelief, lust, pride, anger, envy, and the positive existence of total resistance to him. That's what he would have foreseen. And that's what he would have foreseen in the Arminians too. And in everyone. You see, 
to be saved by grace means that it has to be entirely free. There is no antecedent prompting to God's redeeming love. You know, I'm going to open my sermon Sunday with the lyrics to the great hymn by Jean Ingelow. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. Listen to the lyrics here. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not that I found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine and fold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. T'was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. I find I walk, I love, but oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For thou wert long beforehand with my soul. Always thou lovest me. Why do some people believe in Christ and others don't? Well, for some that don't, it's, it's not the decreed moment that God is going to effectually call them. And you, you hang in there with those people and you keep witnessing to them and you keep praying for them and you hope that God will one day effectually call them. But at the end of the day, at the end of history, why are some people going to heaven and others aren't? Is that fair? Is that unfair? God chooses to save some and not others? No, fair is that everybody goes to hell. That is fair. So some people will get what's fair. And they wouldn't want God anyway. Others will be shown mercy and grace and all the glory for it. All of the glory and the praise will go to God alone. For grace to be grace, it has to be unconditional and free. Otherwise, it's not grace. If by grace, it is not by works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And we are elected, not because of foreseen works. Oh, no. Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, not of works, but of him who calls according to God's purpose of election. Not of works, but of him who calls. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. That's the beating heart of the Christian faith, and that's what it is to have the doctrine of the church. Without unconditional election, there is no doctrine of the church. There is no church. The term ecclesia, the called out ones, meaning what? Effectually called out. Saved by the grace of God through the gospel. That's what it is to be saved by grace and to be loved by God. You want to really be able to rejoice the way the apostles did, to rejoice in the love of God? Then you need to understand, yes, you sought the Lord, but afterward you knew he moved your soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not that I found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Thanks for watching or for listening.